This is retired NBA referee Derek Stafford. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs podcast. Serve the game. We as basketball officials who are passionate about this craft and love the pursuit of improving at it, we're always seeking information and consuming content that will help us get better. So here at the Crown Refs Podcast, we are very blessed to welcome in a 2018 NBA Finals referee, Derek Stafford. Derek worked in the NBA for 30 seasons, entering in 1988 and retiring in 2018. His resume includes 13 NBA Finals games, 180 playoff games, and 1,727 regular season games. He also spent seven seasons as a college official. We spoke about a lot of great subject matter, including how he managed the egos of the NBA superstar players, his most challenging call as an official, and he also discussed how Magic and Bird changed the game for everyone. I think you as a driven and determined basketball official will find a lot of value out of this audio, so let's get right into it. Derek, you served the greatest game in the world for a long, long time, spanning four decades. I want to first start off by saying congratulations on an incredible 30-year NBA career. Thank you very much. You must have done a lot of things right in that time. Could you just talk about how you were able to have so much longevity and such consistency, not only as an official, but also as a professional as well? I think first you have to try to make sure you take care of your body. That's the one of the most difficult parts of our job, different time zones, you know, eating late after games, you know, forcing yourself to get up, catch an early flight, get into a city, trying to still maintain some sort of workout routine. So I was able to, to maintain a pretty consistent workout routine, stayed on a pretty good schedule. And I think that helped me with longevity. Also, you got to be lucky. I had a couple of injuries, but I was able to get some good training, some good therapy, and get back on the court. So I was blessed in a lot of ways. Did you miss any extensive time with those injuries? No, not a lot of time. Uh, my back surgery I had sort of during the summer, so I had time to sort of recover. The knee injury was a uh, meniscus, so it wasn't that severe. I missed some time, but recovering from a meniscus tear, which they only removed about 30%, wasn't major. So I was fortunate. Understood. So let me ask you, what are your three or four core skills that have made you a highly successful NBA basketball official? How'd you do it? Uh, first and foremost, I always have to take my hat off to Derek Garrison. Uh, I had an opportunity to sit in arenas and, and watch some games with him before I got hired. And he sort of pointed out some things that he liked, disliked. He also taught me how to do videotape work. And for me, videotape work became very critical. I learned how to evaluate myself, be critical of myself. And that allowed me to, to improve, to get better. You know, videotape to me is the key to any referee's success. Absolutely. When I was a JV official, I bought a camera because I had no, uh, nobody filming me. I made my wife come and film my games. Film is everything. So it's, it's, it's wild just to hear the fact that you've been refereeing 30 years in the NBA. You basically watched the league grow up in front of your eyes. Can you just bring us back to 1988, which was your rookie ref year, by the way, and um, talk about some of the notable changes 
in the game that has helped transform it into this amazing brand of basketball we have now? Well, here again, I have to give some a lot of credit to David Stern. Take my hat off to him. He he had a vision for where he wanted the league to go. He also understood at the time that we weren't very profitable. We weren't making a lot of money. And, and we were at a time where I didn't even know if the sport was going to be successful. He pointed that out uh, when he spoke at the first training camp that I was involved in. And so at that time, the game was pretty physical, but we did have some great athletes. And then we got lucky. We got lucky with Bird and, and Magic competing in the NCAA tournament. And now they both came into the NBA at the same time. They had a huge following and people followed them to the league. And that's probably one of the main things that saved us. And the game was very, very physical. But I think people appreciated defense at the time and appreciated when Magic brought a little more finesse to the game, but it still was a very physical game. But people seemed to to appreciate that type of basketball. Uh, as time moved on, it became boring. Uh, tempers were flaring more. The game was probably a little bit too physical. So David sort of changed it up a little bit. And then Adam Silver came in and, and he took it to another level. We started emphasizing freedom of movement. We wanted more scoring into the game. So both of those guys did a great job. And, and now I think the game's at its highest point. You know, advertisers are scamming, trying to get involved in this uh, in this process because it's a moneymaker for everybody. Everybody's watching. Still probably not up there with soccer or football yet, but we're we're growing nationwide because it's a game that I'm growing worldwide because it's a game that people can play at all levels and it's not a lot of equipment involved. So basketball has, has come a long ways. Yeah, it's beautiful to watch the evolution. Um, and I know with the rules, it, it's changed a lot over over the years and that's changed the way the players perform as well. Is there a, a particular decade that would you say is the hardest to work based on those rules for that decade? Yeah, when I first came in, we really didn't have any guidelines for the low post. We just basically kind of called it on mm -hmm. field. So I think when they put in no two hands, uh, you couldn't extend your forearm, you could use a forearm and a hand. It's, it we gave us some guidelines so that we all could be consistent on refereeing the low post. And, of course, today we don't have a low post, so that makes the game a little easier. But we do have a lot of perimeter play. We changed the game from where some of the onus was on the offensive player. Like the defensive player jumped, but the offensive player then went out of his way to go into him. Even if the defensive player was not in a legal guarding position, we still will call the offensive foul. We changed that. So now if the defense is not in a legal guarding position, the offensive player can sort of go at him and create contact on his own defensive player. I think that's probably the greatest change that impacts the game right now. And this is this is why so many teams are taking threes because they know that if they get that defensive player in the air and he's definitely not going to be vertical, that they can go into him and draw the foul and get three shots. That's a major change. Tension seems to be at an all-time high between the star players in the league and the officials. 
what do you think has contributed to the disconnect and have the players always complained this consistently? The biggest thing now, I think, is the fact that everything is so visible. You know, back years ago, a star player could communicate with you, even whether he was being uh, cooperative or whether he was being hostile, he could do it in a way. And a lot of people really wouldn't pick up on it. But now with Instagram and social media, and you have to understand, our athletes are very, very sensitive. They try not to be it. And if you talk to them, they will say they're not. But they easily get embarrassed. They know other players, other fans, people are watching. So we are the way to bring attention to the game. So even if they make a mistake, they still can come to us and pretend like it's our fault. And then they realize now with the social media that everybody can see it. And so now people talk about it more, where in the past – you might see it in a game, you may not. Plus, so many of our games on TV now, which is, with the NBA package, with TNT, ESPN, ABC, all of our games are televised. A lot right. of games on TV. So everybody is seeing now. So I don't think it's changed drastically, but I just think because of the visibility now, it appears that it's a lot more negative than it used to be understand yeah definitely more visible everything's under a microscope now so you're saying it's pretty much pretty much always been the way it is just we're more exposed to it yes all right so what are some of the effective tips for managing the egos the the beauty in being a a nba referee is is that you you see people you get to know people you read about people and in that regard you sort of you can sort of understand a person's personality and I just think you just have to have a knack for dealing with people. Some people have it, some people don't. You have to know where to meet somebody. I know there are certain players in the league that no matter what I say, they're not gonna they're not gonna buy it. So why even have a discussion with them? Just basically listen to what they're saying and move on. When you try to explain or try to debate with somebody that you know for a fact is not gonna hear you, what's the point? But I think it takes time for people to understand that. It takes years in the league to understand that certain people, you're just not going to sway. So just allow them to vent and and move on, as opposed to really trying to convince them that you're right. It's just not going to work. So for me, the technique was to try to learn every player individually as much as I could so that I would know how to communicate with each one individually because no, no two players are the same. I like that. Treat everybody the same, but don't talk to everybody Correct. the same. What's the most difficult call for you? I still think the goaltending call is still the most difficult because, number one, a, a lot of times you're, you're refereeing an offensive player going up with a shot and defender may be under him, beside him, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a blocked shot, and that's a surprise element, particularly if it's a secondary defender that blocked the shot. And I think when we miss most of our calls, we're surprised. And that's the play that sort of always catches you off guard. And now you got to determine whether the ball was on its way down, had it reached its peak, did it actually touch the glass, which is also very difficult because with the naked eye, you just can't tell sometimes whether that ball got to the glass prior to the block. So goaltending was always my toughest call. I agree with you. That's such a difficult call because of the speed. 
And a lot of times it's a layered play too. It could be off a rebound yes. or a quick tip yes. in, you know, bang, bang. Want to hear what mine are? Yes. What are yours? Well, well, traveling for sure. I got to do a better job with travels. Uh, definitely miss one or two a game, but you know, a lot of people talk about the block charge. I actually think the charge no call is a little bit harder than that. You know, where block is not really in play. It's either it's either an offensive foul or or it's nothing. Um, I, I definitely have have difficulty with those plays. You know, those plays I'm talking about. Yeah, those plays for me weren't as difficult because I tried to anticipate someone coming over to draw a charge or the defender getting in position. So in a lot of those plays, I could sort of lock in on the defender and at least I would know where he was as opposed to him coming from out of nowhere, surprising me. So that play was, is not as difficult for me as it may be for some people. And I true to what you're saying, our players do act, you know, they will flop. Mm-hmm. Under contact, which makes that no call difficult. But if you see the defender when he establishes a position, it makes that play a whole lot easier. So I'm a big believer in proper nutrition and personal fitness. Um, but when I'm traveling, you know, it's a lot harder to stay disciplined because we lack the accessibility. We're not traveling with our kitchen or our gym. So how do you how do you maintain a fitness and nutrition plan with such a rigorous travel schedule? Well, I'm certainly not. A vegan and I'm not one of the healthiest eaters in the world uh, but the main thing that I did was I weighed in every locker room I mean once they put a scale in every locker room I weighed so that I would know exactly where my weight was when I was picking up or when I was losing and then I pretty much had a routine I'm not a b- big breakfast eater so a bagel a cup of coffee or something just to get the body flowing I got away from eating lunch every day in a restaurant because you sit down and you eat bread or you eat a full meal. And I, so I tried to limit myself to two decent meals a day. So if I just nibbled in the morning, I would try to grab a sandwich for lunch to carry me through the day, get to the arena, maybe have some fruit. Now, if I'm a little bit hungry after the game, it's not as bad if I had a big breakfast and I had a big lunch. So, but the scale to me was the key. I knew where I wanted to be how much I want to weigh. And I think I started I started doing some swimming later on, and I think that helped a lot because it took some of the pressure off of, off of me running on a treadmill or even riding a bike or even on a stepper during the day. I, I was just getting my exercise swimming. Yeah, swimming's a great low-impact exercise, uh, great full-body work. Were you very, like, routine-based? Very routine. On the very road? routine. I, I pretty much stayed with the same routine. Uh, if my have dinner or drinks the night before the game, I was fine with that. But game day, I had a routine. And then after the game, I'm, I'm not one to go to the bar. I'm not one to have dinner. And I had a great excuse because, you know, once I became a crew chief, I would have a game report to do. So, so I pretty much stayed on that same routine for the last few years in the league. Gotcha. Piggybacking off that last question, this is probably the more important one, especially for someone who's trying to pursue officiating as their primary career. How do you find a work-life balance? Well, that is a a very, very difficult question. And it, it depends on your situation. I mean, if you're single with no kids, it makes it a lot easier, even if you're in a committed relationship. 
if you're married, no kids, a little bit easier. Your spouse hopefully understands that, you know, you're pursuing a career, you have some extra income coming in, and, and therefore she's ha- happy with that. But the key to it is the other person has to understand what it is you're doing. I mean, are you refereeing because you're pursuing a career? Are you refereeing to make extra money? Are you refereeing because you enjoy it and you like it? Then once you can explain that situation to the other person, I think it makes it easier. So, but you can't be selfish about it. And it only lasts for a few months, fortunately for, you know, the, the high schools or the colleges. So it's not overbearing schedule. So you can sort of balance yourself. And I just think that's the key. But communication is huge. And I recommend taking that person to some of your games. They can understand. Take them to a high school game. Take them to a small college game. Even take them to a Division One game so they understand that you're working, you're making some extra money, and you enjoy what you're doing. You really love it, but it's work. They really have to understand that it's work. In some situations, because you travel to glamorous cities, and if you meet a person later on, they don't look at it as as work, as if they, if because they weren't with you in the beginning, so they may not understand everything that you put in to get there. But even if you reference in the NBA, you make a trip overseas, you may get a trip here or there, but you're still it's still work. It's not it's not vacation. It's not travel fun. Were you able to have a lot of downtime in the off seasons? Uh, actually, I, I took advantage of the downtime. I tried to take advantage of what I consider to be one of my talents. One of my gifts is to, you know, try to work with young men and I enjoy baseball. So during the summer, I would always, I always coached a, a baseball team for about 25 years. I had a baseball team in the summer. So that sort of kept me busy. So it wasn't really a lot of downtime because the kids were always at the house or we were traveling or we were playing games or practicing. So, Stay pretty busy. Thank you for that. Um, all right, back to the NBA. Who are some of the more difficult coaches you've worked with, and how'd you handle them? Uh, the first person comes to mind is uh, Kevin Lockery. And, you know, Kevin off the court, I had a chance to meet him. He's a great guy, but he just had a, a different personality on the floor. And he was one of those guys that you had to learn you just really couldn't talk to. You could never convince him that you were right. And when I found realized that I was able to get along with him better on the floor. I did call a few tees on him, but he was probably my most difficult. Dick Mata early on in my career, I didn't have a lot of his games, but he was difficult. He was a guy that didn't believe anything you said. So, but they're all tough. You know, they all want to win. 90% of the time they think they're right. So it really doesn't serve any purpose to go over and get into a debate with them. Because at that moment, they do probably believe they're right. But those are probably my two toughest starting out. And then, you know, Van Gundy was sort of tough. You know, he had a way about him that would sort of irritate you, you a little bit. I can say that now that I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, good. And, uh, He'd probably laugh it off. Yeah, I'm sure he's laughing, too, if he hears it. Uh, Pat Riley mm-hmm. could be tough. I mean, he was stern, and he could be, and I think he was fair when it came to ratings and things like that. But he could be tough as well. So the NBA coaches gave you ratings? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how they do it now, but when I was on the executive board, I had a chance to understand our rating system. And so we were rated by the coaches, 
they had a rating, the general managers had a rating, and then we had our observers that had a rating, and then mm -hmm. vice vice president of operation had a rating. So they would, and the director of officiating, our direct boss had a rating. So it was a it was percentage based for each person, I, for each group. I mean, and I can't remember the exact uh, numbers, and that was our composite, and that's how we. That's how we were rated one through 60. So you got rated one through 60 at the end of every season. I think they were sending in around the mid year break or right after mid year break, but we only got it once a year and that was the end of the year. What was your highest ranking? My last few years, I never really looked at it. You know, when I was in the finals, I really didn't care that much about it. So to be honest, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter once you're in the yeah, party. So I really didn't care. So, <laughs> I, and once I got off the executive board, and then they did change the way we did things. Uh, they no longer uh, sent the ratings to the board. I think our attorney got them. So I, I never called to find out what I was rated my last, probably my last 15 years. Gotcha. Um, all right, I got a good one for you. If you could work with the same two officials every game, who's in your crew? Wow. And that would be all time. Every anybody that I work with. Let's go all time. Hmm. Wow. If all time, if I could work with these guys, just say particularly a big game, or you say I could work with all the time, it would be hard to say all the time because, of course, I'd want to be a crew chief. <laughs> but okay. Uh, but throwing crew chief out the window and just working with a couple of guys, I probably would like to work. I probably would work with Jake and probably Joey. Jake O'Donnell and Joey Crawford. Okay. I'm sure a lot of guys would say Joey as well, right? I've heard he's the GOAT. Is that true? Daryl Garrison is still my GOAT. I just, I just love the way Daryl worked. And the reason why I didn't include him because I looked at him more as the boss. But Daryl just had a smooth way about himself on the floor. He put you at ease. Uh, he let you work. So my all-time partner would probably be Daryl Garrison. I didn't say him probably because I still look at him more as the boss. Gotcha. All right, this is, might even be a better question. If you can assign game seven of this year's NBA Finals, this is a two-part question. Okay. If you could assign game seven of this year's NBA finals, which three former officials would you put on the game? Oh, wow. Of course, not including yourself, because we would have you on. No, thank you. Uh, all time. Yeah. Mm, Daryl, Jake, and Danny Crawford. Now, what about the current crop? The current crop of guys right now? Right now. The eligible guys that could go that work, could game, work seven. game seven this year. This year. I probably would go, based on what I've seen and based on what I know about the guys, I would probably go Scott Foster, Uh, probably 
Mark Davis. And probably because I know he's retiring this year, I probably would give it to Duke Callahan also. What was your most memorable game and why? Well, when you asked that question, the first thing came to mind, I was I was fortunate in the sense that uh, I had Michael Jordan's first game back home when he retired, and that was and that was chaotic. That is a situation I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, the fans were unbelievable, cameras everywhere. I mean, it probably was bigger than the finals. In terms of a game, uh, I had a game in Portland. At the time, we didn't have that many TV games. I was fortunate enough to have a TV game. I think it was, it might even been CBS, came on which, which network. And I was working with Jake in Portland, and they hated Jake in Portland. And I had a shot clock violation against Portland. Really, it was a gamer, and L.A. wins the game. It was a big game between L.A. and Portland. And i never forget the expression on Jake's face because we weren't sure whether I got the play right because we didn't have video in the locker room. Then finally a camera guy came in and told us, hey, great call. So I'll never forget that game because Jake had warned me that once we hit the floor that they were going to just boo him and scream at him, and they did. You know, time we hit the floor, they went after him like like you wouldn't believe. And I still have not to this day experienced anything like that the way the people in Portland hated Jake. Wow. How did he uh... – deal with it uh he was a professional jake i mean i think he even might enjoy it a little bit jake was just that kind of guy you know he was he was special he worked professional baseball and basketball just had a way about him and i don't think it bothered him at all he was like the dion of refs yep. so what was the hardest thing you've had to overcome throughout your career Probably not being so blunt with my coworkers, you know, understanding that people are sensitive. And even though I wasn't very sensitive and I've always had bosses, I felt like they cared about me. So if somebody was hard on me, it never really bothered me how they talked to me. But, you know, people are different, different, different parts of the world. So, you know, just trying to communicate properly, trying to find the right words to say to people when you, when you may be not being as complimentary as they would like for you to be, and you're just trying to be honest and you're trying to help them to get better, you know, trying to choose my words properly, I think that was probably the most difficult task for me. All right. How old were you when you entered the league? 32. 32, and how old when you retired? Uh, I'll be 63 in uh, November. I've been out one year. So between the ages of 32 and 62, at which age were you at your best? 45. Dead smack in the middle? Yeah, 45. I've been around long enough. I, I understood a little bit about how to deal with the coaches and players, and I felt like I was at the top of my game in terms of my instincts. You know, your instincts – your vision, your court awareness, it starts to, to whine a little bit once you get get into the 50s. That's why you need very, very solid mechanics. But at that point, I felt like I knew the rules completely. I studied hard. I worked out hard still. So I felt like I, at that point, I was at the top of my game.
I know you're involved in the Atlanta Pro-Am circuit, and there's been some great officials to come through the ranks who've went on to have successful careers. Could you just name some of the officials that you were able to inspire and help develop in your program? Well, we've had, we have had some good officials to come through and we've had some to make the league and we've had some to go into the college ranks. Uh, Patillo worked in our program a little bit. He was a great NCAA official, Tony Green as well. Uh, Eddie Rush and I kind of did it together. So we worked hard together. We pushed each other. So I'll take credit for him. He can take credit for me. Um, and then you have guys like, you know, Sean Wright works in our pro-am. Courtney Kirkland, Brian Forte works on me in the pro-am. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember everybody. But we've had even had people like Sean Corbin to come through and do some games. Tom Washington, who lives here, does a lot of work. But in terms of me taking credit for anybody – it's not really anybody that, that I can solely take credit for. I mean, a lot of guys, they worked hard. They had other people to push them. I may have added some icing on the cake, but they had already put in the work. They were on their way. You know, fortunately, they listened to some of the tidbits that I had. And we've had, a, we've had a great crew, and we still do. You know, guys like Finzi, Ransom now, he's in the league, and he still works in the program. And that's the key. You know, a lot of guys – don't work in the summer, and I don't know how they do it, but eventually it's going to take a toll on you. You got to put in some time in the summer. I missed one summer working out of 30 years, so you got to put some time in. Derek, I feel really strongly about this topic. I think a lot of officials just really work the main season, and they take it take off you know, in the spring, in the summer, in the fall, or they go very light. I believe that there's no off season. It's just one season. And that's the way you stay sharp. I, I always, especially, I always wondered um, high level officials, Division One, NBA guys, where do they work in the summer? How do they stay sharp? To answer your question, a lot of them don't stay sharp. I mean, they basically, at that point, they're living off their name. If they were actually being judged based on what they're doing on videotape, you probably would be surprised at where they would be ranked. And it's, and it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. I had a guy to tell me, and it stuck with me after he, told me what he was doing. When Michael Jordan said to me one night, he said, hey, man, you don't get better during the season. You get better in the offseason. When he said that to me, that's when I realized I was going to work every summer. That's great advice from MJ. Yep. What else did he tell you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, some things I can't say over the air. but Okay. Uh, he's quite a guy. He, he hates to lose. So what would the 62-year-old Derek Stafford say to the 32-year-old rookie ref? What advice would you have for him? Just listen. You know, spend most of your time listening to what people have to say. Take the time to filter what people have to say. And have somebody in your corner that you trust and make sure you do a lot of videotape work with that person. Uh you know, a lot of people think that they can look at tape by themselves. It's extremely difficult to do by yourself. And I don't care how subjective you think you are. It's just very hard to do by yourself. So I would say get you a mentor, somebody you trust, somebody that's going to do videotape with you and it's going to be critical and help you to get better. And just listen. You're not going to impress anybody with your knowledge. No sense in trying to do a lot of talking. Just sit back and listen. 
Do you have any tips for me and the rest of the audience on a couple on how to watch film? A couple things to look for. I I, I know we all want to we all want to validate the calls, but what else we should we be looking for? When you sit down and look at tape, the first thing you have to do is to forget about the game you worked. If you if you look at plays and and you remind yourself of those plays during the course of the game, you're doing yourself a disservice. Look at the plays and recognize the plays. Look at your positioning based on what you see on tape. A lot of people, they will have an offensive foul and they will think they were right. And so when they look at tape, they just look at tape and they pretty much validate that they were right. They don't look at the play to see if they were right. And that's the difficulty in this. You have to try to look at it as if you did not work the game. Must be great for you um, to to ref a game and then get uh, get the game footage uploaded immediately to your iPad. Is that how is that how it works? Yeah. Now after the game, you can we we also have what you call a flip disc. You can get it on a flip disc and you can connect it to your computer, or you can load it up to your iPad where you can look at it immediately. Yes. Or and you can also look at plays in the locker room on on their screen if you want to validate some plays before you leave the locker room. I'm I'm not a big component of looking at uh, looking at plays at halftime because you still have a second half to work. You want to stay focused. You know, you might want to look at one or two plays that are critical, you know, a third foul on somebody, a goal team that a coach asks you about. But I think that's where a lot of referees lose it because you come in at halftime, you spend so much time looking at plays, you don't decompress, and now you go back out on the floor and you never really gave your mind a chance to relax and get ready for the second half. And that's how you start out with a bad third quarter. So even though it seems like a great thing to do, I would just, I would always just go in and look at one or two plays that they asked me about. I wouldn't worry too much about what I thought I got right or what I got wrong. I would wait after the game to worry about that. That, But that's just me. Some guys spend a lot of time looking at plays at halftime. Last question. If you can go back and do a couple things differently, what would it be? Wow. Probably listen more my first couple of years. Uh, my first couple of years, you, you're trying to establish yourself. You're trying to prove to yourself that you deserve to be there. And you're also trying to gain the respect of your, of your coworkers. You know, in a way, it helped me because I got on the executive board like my third year in the league because people, you know, did respect me. But I think I would have learned a little bit more and I think I would have been a little more prepared even for the executive board, things like that, if I had just sat back and, and paid and just listened more and paid more attention to what some of the veteran guys were saying. Yeah, man, keep, you know, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job and, and you're touching a lot of people. Ever had to struggle with keeping your uniform tucked while you're on the court? Are you constantly retucking your shirt every time you run from trail to lead? Well, we have the perfect solution to keep you looking professional while you serve the game. Neat Tucks. Neat Tucks is the world's number one way to keep your jersey or shirt tucked. Neat Tucks were designed to fit comfortably. 
They're adjustable and they attach and detach with the click of a button. You can get them on fast and you can get them off even faster without having to undo the clips from your uniform or dress shirt. Neat tucks are currently available in the flat buckle or the active style, which has a thick buckle. Neat tucks is currently being worn by officials in the NBA, the WNBA, FIBA, and Division One. Ladies and gentlemen, it's short season, but more importantly, it's camp season. So it's time to look your absolute best as you're applying and auditioning for a job. Mike Ori, the creator and owner, is such a big supporter of Crown Refs that he's offering a 20% discount on all orders. Go to neattux.com and enter Crown Refs at checkout to receive 20% off your next order. Neat Tux and Crown Refs, serving the game. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Can't wait to share so much more content with you. All we ask is that you could return the favor and just share it with your fellow referee friends. Um, people that you work with, uh, we'd really appreciate that. Have a great day. Crown Refs.